On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamper, and we are catching up with brand new Hamilton Ticat, Micah Johnson. We're talking about whether esports belongs in multi-sports games like the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games. Are we in a psychological recession? That's the word or the phrase they're using, but is it really true? What about the party, the members of the Liberal Party who broke with the Liberal position on the restrictions? What is going to happen to them? Who can benefit? What politician can benefit from doing something about our soaring gas prices? And Steve Steos joins us to talk about the Hamilton Bulldogs, who are on a heater right now. Stick around. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Welcome back to the show. Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamper today. And if you were with us yesterday on the show, we were talking about all the changes to the Ticats this year. So many big names going out, so many big names coming in. It is going to be a different looking team, it would seem, when they get on the field in a few months. One of the guys coming in, a name that you will surely recognize, a star player for many years now in the CFL, defensive tackle Micah Johnson, who joins us now. Micah, thanks for doing this. First of all, congratulations. Welcome to Hamilton and appreciate the time this morning. Oh, man, it's awesome. I'm glad to be here. Excited. So, as I say, we were talking on the show, and you weren't there yesterday, but this is a team, you, you've you watched the Ticats from a distance, um, you know what they've looked like in the past, this is going to be a different looking roster than you've seen in the past, or other teams have seen in the past. Uh, yeah, for sure, I think it will. Um, uh, I'm sure the front office, you know, made the decisions that um, they felt the team uh, needed what was best for the organization, so they were able to keep a lot of good players and also bring some new faces in. You've, you've been on a number of different teams. As, as a guy coming into an organization, is it easier to come in when there's a bunch of new guys also working their way in as opposed to when you come to a team that is stable and really established with all the guys there? Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's almost the same. I, I don't think your, your approach doesn't change um, as far as when you're entering a new team like that. I just think, um, you know, the biggest thing is you just want to, uh, come in and just put the work in and just work so you can just, uh, you know, gain God's respect around the locker room. Hmm. Why did you choose the Ticats? Uh, honestly, for me, my whole career, I've been out West. And, um, you know, it's it's been a strain on my family and it's been a lot of sacrifices that's came with that. Um, I'm from Northern Virginia. You know, all my family's there. And um, I thought it was time for me to get a little closer to home. And, um well, my father passed in this past season, it was extremely hard for me, you know, being all the way in Saskatchewan and not being able to touch my family and be with them um, much as I wanted to. So for me, I, I wanted to come out east and it was just um, amazing to me. You know, my agent reached out, you know, at the beginning of the negotiation period saying, man, Hamilton is extremely interested. So it was a, mm-hmm. it was almost a no brainer for me at that point. Yeah, I mean, it's very sorry about your father. I, I went through something similar this year, lost my dad, but I, I was at least there. That would be really tough to not be right. able to be involved. Right, right. I, um, I left SAS, you know, um, you know, a couple times. It, it, it just was difficult, you know, with the COVID and the restrictions, and it was towards the end of the season with playoffs. So it just became, you know, real hard versus if I could just, you know, shoot back down across the border, you can get a straight flight, the hour flight, you know, to D.C., different things like that. I think it probably – would have been a lot easier. You've been around this league for a while now. You've, you've won great cups. You've been a, a star player here. Is there something appealing as, as well as the geography? Is there something appealing about coming to a team that hasn't won a great cup in a long time since 1999 
and having the chance to help end that drought for a, a fan base that really wants it? Um, I think it is. Um, Great Cups are special. You know, being a part of them are special, you know. Um, and just, you know, as far as Hamilton, it's been tough because you're talking a couple plays away. You're talking repeatedly um, going to the Great Cup. So I know the fans are hungry and I know the players are hungry. So for me, it's just I just want to be an extra piece, an extra, an extra link that the, um, that the team has been missing to kind of uh, try to get us over the hump. This has been a team, though, that one of the strengths has been its defense for a number of years now. As you've watched them from a distance again, but as you've watched them, was that simply great players or was that also great scheme that was making that defense work? Oh, hand in hand, man. Um, football comes, it, it's both. You have to have a great coaching and a great scheme as well as the players to, you know, run that scheme for the coaches the way they seem fit. So, you know, I've been a part of a defense where I felt like we've had great players, but the coaching wasn't there. And I've also been on the other side where I felt like we had a great coach, but we just didn't have the right players to, you know, do what we needed. So I feel like they've always had a, a combination of both um, out there in Hamilton, you know, great coaching staff and um, um, great players as well. For many years now in the CFL, and you'd be well aware of this because you've been on the good side of this, for many years, the West has been seen as the power conference and, and not just seen. I mean, we the crossover has come into play a number of times and it's always been the West team crossing over. But I got to say, over the last number of days as free agency has been going on here, it looks like the East is drawing a lot of the big name stars that are on the move. Are you seeing the same thing? I am. I'm seeing the same thing uh, from... This has been one of the, um, uh, you know, funnest free agencies I've seen since I've been a part of the CFL, um, you know, with the movement, the movement, pe moving pieces. So I think, um, you know, I don't I don't I don't necessarily I think I think time will tell definitely when it comes to it. But I, I see what you're saying. A lot of players are coming out east and I, I do think a lot of the teams got better um, in the east this offseason. Is that a good sure. thing? Is that a good thing? I think it is a good thing. You want to, uh, you know, you kind of want to um, balance the power and, you know, you never really want crossover games. That's not the, that's not the best look. I don't think for, for the division, I mean, for the league, let alone that division over there. So I think it's good if you have a uh, strong teams on both sides. And I think uh, the East has a extremely uh, strong fan base over there. So I think it'd be good to give, give, give those fans good football. Yeah, you want a balance of power, but when you join the Ticats, you don't want the Argos getting better to balance the power. You want to crush them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, not, look, I feel you. From, I, I was kind of speaking from a from fan lead perspective. Yeah, exactly I know, right. I know. From my, from my perspective, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, you want everyone to leave the Argos and the Red Blacks right, and the right, and go right. west. We try, exactly, we try right? to get them down as low as they can. That's right. <laughs> uh, where are you now? Where, where are we catching you today? Tallahassee, Florida. Okay, what, just to rub it into the people up here, not only have you got a new contract and you got a new team, but what, what's the weather like in Tallahassee today? Uh, it's supposed to be 71 today. Hmm. You know, Micah, we really want to like you, but when you talk about weather like that, it makes it a little harder. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I got y'all, man. Look, anybody any anybody uh, need to uh, take a little vacation? I got an extra room here, man. You come stay for a few days. Well, listen, we are uh, we are really looking forward to having you up here. We're really looking forward more than anything. Not, I mean, you coming up here is great. We're really looking forward just to having a normal season, hopefully, for a change. That's that's the biggest thing, right? For sure. Um, yeah, for sure. Last year, I think it was incredible that we were able to, you know, get through the season um, the way that we did, and I'm glad we were able to, you know, um, you know, give the fans something. But you kind you felt that you felt the mission. You couldn't have the interactions. Um, you weren't as active in the community. 
you know, throughout the week and throughout the season. And I think those are some some of the things that, you know, take the league over the top and, um, you know, really connect us with the fans. So hopefully this year we can, you know, get that connection going a little bit more. Yeah, and you watched the Great Cup, I'm sure. Uh, one more play. One more play in the Ticats might have won. Maybe Micah Johnson is the guy to give them that one more play this year. Uh, listen, really appreciate you doing this today. Thanks so much. And again, congratulations and welcome to Hamilton. All right, appreciate it. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There was a report in the Guardian newspaper this week that when the Commonwealth Games open in Birmingham this August, a new event is going to be running alongside. Now, it's not going to be part of the Games, but it's going to be sanctioned by the Games. And it is eSports, as in computer games, playing online games, not running and jumping and throwing, but playing computerized games. It's, it's, it is something that I am quite positive is going to create some divisions and some, uh, some contrary opinions one way or the other. Lawrence Phillips is the director of content with esport.gg, which covers esports. He joins us now. Lawrence, thank you so much for doing this today. Hello. Nice to meet you, Scott. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So I listen, I, I don't think you will even probably disagree with me on the point when I say that when you introduce, even if it's, a, if it's not with the Commonwealth Games, but alongside or sanctioned, there are traditionalists who are going to say the barbarians are at the gate. And as soon as you let this happen, uh, there's no more sports events anymore. This is crazy. What would you say to that? I think that, you know, times change and, uh, you know, lots of games, for example, if we think about like skateboarding or something being in the Olympics before that's outrageous. And I think times will change. So I think it's just one of those things in the Guardian newspaper. One of the quotes was from an Olympian from the 1970s saying, oh, it's just a game. It's not a sport. But, you know, times change and so do people's opinions. So I think with time in 10 to 20 years, we'll think it's a normal thing. I don't know if what I'm going to ask next is uh, it sets people off in the esports community, but are, are are gamers athletes? I would say so. If you think about how you define an athlete as someone that commits a lot of time to perfect their craft, um, I think the main argument against esports in the Olympics is people said about the physical exertion, right? That they think you should have a lot of physical exertion that qualifies it as a sport. But if you think about the Olympics, they do have shooting and how much physical exertion is shooting, right? Just use pulling the trigger not that dissimilar to esports. So um, I can understand why people think it's not a sport, but there are different levels of physical exertion. It's just that maybe esports is more in sort of the mental game, right? But it, they do spend maybe 12 to 14 hours practicing. There's a lot that goes into that. And I think if people know that, they probably respect it more. We're not talking about like mm. Pac-Man and Pong. We're talking about <laughs> games. With a lot. We're, not, we're not talking about a games with a lot of strategic depth. You know, some of them have been compared to like chess meets basketball. So I think there's a there's more depth than people realize. You just you just ruined my chances. If Donkey Kong had been an option, I might have been able to be a Commonwealth Games athlete. I don't know. Um, yeah. But but really, that's the debate, isn't it? If if we can make the argument, if if someone can make the compelling case that somehow gamers are athletes or athletic or playing a sport, there's really not much of a debate. And if you can't make that argument, then I think you're going to always have that debate. Yeah, it's down to personal preference. I think one big thing that people also need to consider is the Olympic Games obviously needs to attract attention and the millennial audience is a huge audience, which is why we see traditional sports teams having esports teams. So whether there's an esports event or not, it's not going to take away from the Olympics. It's just another way to get more audience to watch the Olympics. So I think there's value in that as well. What about that audience? Because um, I'm assuming that the esports crowd, the esports audience is already watching. And so I don't know that adding 
esports as a as a, a thing alongside the Commonwealth Games would bring a lot more esports fans to watch. They're already there, but would this b- broaden the base by having an awful lot more people see it who otherwise would never stumble upon it? Yes, exactly. That's that's the same reason why football teams have esports teams. They might, uh, so, sorry, soccer teams or NFL or whatever, is not because they think, oh wow, this is just exactly like a sport. They're like, well, no, this is a different audience, and they may, this is their entry point, right? They're going to enter the Olympics, oh, because they've got the games. Oh, I might watch the rest of the Olympics. So you're just broadening your audience, and there may be more people to the Olympics. It's not like this is added and it takes away from something else. So I think that's what people need to think of. Okay. Maybe it's not the same as my the sport I love so much, whether that's basketball, skiing, or whatever. But this could bring more audience, more quote unquote eyeballs to the Olympics, which is what the organizers want because they want it to be continue to be something that people do watch. What would they play? Do do we know for sure what the game or games would be that they would play, or is that up for grabs? I think it's up for up for grabs. They haven't announced it, but I would imagine it would be a team based game because those are quite popular at the moment. And I think. If people saw the level of sort of communication between the players, they'd be quite excited to see that. I, it's difficult to say which game they would pick. I personally would be against a sports-based game, for example, like FIFA, which is just, you know, soccer. That would make sense to me because you, you could have that at the Olympics. So I think it should be something that's very different to what, you know, traditional sports. And, and uh, I was going to ask that because one of the things that I think if you were an, a traditionalist, if you were worried about, I mean, the video games offer levels of you can do things on video games you cannot do in real life and you know you start bringing that stuff in and who knows maybe it diminishes the excitement of the actual sport if you've become used to seeing that stuff on the games but if it's something entirely different it's a different story yeah exactly that's my point i think ultimately i think they should perhaps divide the olympics and have like quote-unquote digital olympics where there are olympics that are more mental for example we could have chess for example which is a you know a really competitive mental sport but you know i think that would be ultimately the goal whether i think you know there should be like the nba the basketball winners of the olympics standing next to someone who's really good at a computer game i'm not really sure but i think they'll probably be separate and i think that's okay and you've said i mean we've seen the olympics add sports over the years that were sort of x games fair i mean bmx racing or rock climbing or surfing you know those kind of things so to you is it whether it's here, because again, it's not part of the Commonwealth Games, but it's sanctioned by, but to you, is it inevitable that at some point, whether it's now or four years or eight years or 20 years, is it inevitable this is going to be in the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games? I think so, just because of the level of interest. And especially if you think during the pandemic, the amount of the video game industry just boomed, people like are starting to see the, you know, appreciate it. I think it's inevitable, whether it's now in four years or 10 years, it's going to happen. I think it's in some, in some way. Can you promise me one thing though? Because we're really tired of the steroid and drug things. Can you promise that esports athletes will never be involved in a doping scandal? No, the, the, the closest thing they've got to an addiction is like an energy drink. So I think we'll be fine. <laughs> energy drink and Cheetos. As long as they don't test for Cheetos, everyone is fine. Uh, Lawrence <laughs> Phillip, really uh, fantastic stuff. I really appreciate you taking time to discuss this. Thank you for your time this morning. You're welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Is the economy good right now or is it lousy? Take a second. Think about it for a second. What do you think? Is the economy in good shape right now or is it struggling? Here's why I asked the question. Economists tell us that the economy here in the country, in Canada, is growing. And yet a new poll says, asking Canadians, says two thirds of us believe we are in a recession. 
Polara Strategic Insights did that poll. Two-thirds of us believe we're in a recession. Economists say, no, no, things are humming along quite nicely. We are in what people are calling a psychological recession. I had not heard that term before, but I have now. Dr. Eric Cam is an associate pre- professor in the Department of Economics at Ryerson University. He joins us now. Dr. Cam, thank you for the time today. My pleasure. Now, I got to admit, um, I might have said that we were in a recession if you had asked me because it kind of just feels like tough times. And I'm not really sure why, if we're told things are so good, why does it feel like it's tough times if it's not? Because it is tough times. It's not acceptable for economists who have an axe to grind if they work for a particular bank or they work for the government to try to sell a narrative that everything is wonderful. I'm here to tell you because I have no horse in the race that it's not wonderful. And in fact, it's pretty horrible. The problem is, is that you look at where we are right now in terms of one statistic, gross domestic product seems to be rising. And so people say, well, the economy must be growing. We must be doing very well. Well, no, we are not. Number one, we're still at pre-pandemic levels with respect to gross domestic product. So all you're really seeing right now is that we've dug a 25 foot hole and we're one foot higher than we were. So are you going to call Mm. that better? Are you going to call that success? Well, I mean, yes, I guess if that's your, if that's your metric, then we're better than we were a couple of months ago. But in my impression, economics is about people. It's a social science and how, and most people are not doing as well as they were thanks to, and we can dive into any of this. We've got high unemployment we have high inflation, we have too much currency out there, and too few goods and services. So if you want to go with a strict technical definition of are we doing better? Yes, but it's like love. You can't feel it, you have to know it. And the reality (laughs) is we are not doing any better. In fact, we're doing worse. And see, on the one hand, I say, well, that's great because now I don't feel like I'm insane because it was feeling like that was the case. On the other hand, of course, it's not great if the economy is not doing well. You touched on something there that I wondered about even before we started this conversation. Our government has pumped so much money into the economy that has with CERB and everything else that has kept people afloat. It's kept businesses open. It's actually put money in people's pockets, sometimes more money than they had. Is that an artificial then sense that the economy is doing okay just because we've just thrown so much cash into the system? Well, yeah. I mean, it was absolutely the definition of a stopgap mechanism so that more people than already have wouldn't lose their homes. I mean, what what basically happened is the government said, how are we going to stop the economy from completely collapsing? And as many people said, we could do it once. You could throw billions of dollars in people's pockets, but you can't do that more than once. Because as you said very correctly, it's absolutely just an artificial propping up. I mean, it's like putting fake legs. The problem now is that now that we've moved on from that, what do you have left in the economy? Well, you you have a Bank of Canada who says we are commissioned to keep inflation at a 2% level. We don't want prices to go up more than 2% a year. But of course, you know that we're at about 5 or 6 or 7%, depending on what sector you're looking at. So in the short run, was it necessary to do what the government did? I guess you could argue it was, although I thought it was excessive. In the long run, the Bank of Canada cannot contend with the mess the government has left it. As you said, there is just too much money 
chasing too few goods. And that is essentially a first year economics definition of inflation. And when you combine that with the supply chain problems, then you have a double whammy of prices going up. And the Bank of Canada, as good as it is, as smart as they are, they can't fight against that as quickly as the prices went up. I love your reference to the first year economics. I took first year economics at Ryerson in journalism school. I think that was one of the few things that stuck with me. <laughs> Is there a... Did I teach you? Was it me? It was Eric Wright, I believe, was his name way back once upon a time. So he was a good teacher. My, office, just... my longtime office neighbor, he is retired and doing well. Excellent. Is there a, is there a benefit to, so when, when we came on and we started talking about this and you said, no, no, this is a, a narrative that is being put out there by banks or others. Is there a benefit to Canadians being told and maybe convinced that things are better than they are? Does that then spur people to think, well, maybe I'm not feeling it, but if the economy is doing okay, I should probably spend some money. And does that loosen the purse strings and get the economy flowing again just by telling people it's good? You know what? I think that you could sell that story to some people some of the time. But unlike many of the people in the public sector, I don't think Canadians are as stupid as their government thinks they are. <laughs> and I'll give you an example. The Bank of Canada comes out and says, we're going to raise interest rates. We're going to raise interest rates. And what you expect people to do is to put that into their expectations and change their spending behavior. Guess what? They didn't. So now the Bank Canada says, all right, people aren't as dumb as we thought they were. So now we're actually going to raise rates. This whole thing about can we fix expectations by telling the public one thing and doing another? Okay, it sometimes works with some success. The problem is it's a first date. You can only do it once. And after you've done that, you've already fired that bullet. You have nothing left. So, I mean, there is some old theories that say what you do is, you know, tell the public but then don't show them the right hand. I think that's grossly the brains of the Canadian population, and I would not put that type of policy commitment. Dr. Eric Cam, a professor with the Department of Economics at Ryerson University. Very much appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Stay healthy. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, in the midst of this, we have seen in the past few days, two liberal MPs break from their official party line and come out and say, yeah, you know what? It's time for Canada to start either removing mandates or explaining how we're going to get there. It's time to start heading in that direction. Now, generally... A backbencher or two who would speak out and kind of show up the prime minister a little bit would be subject to some swift party discipline. So what does it say that that has not yet happened? I want to bring in Daniel Perry, who's a consultant with Summer Strategies. He joins us now. Daniel, thanks for the time today. Oh, thank you for making the time. Are you surprised that these two MPs have not yet been sent to the bad boy chair by the prime minister? I think they've been sent to the bad boy chair in the best way the prime minister can at the moment, especially in a minority parliament context. You can't be losing members. And especially in the one context of white balance riding, it's a swing riding. It's changed hands six times since 2006. So the government's doing some math there and they realize that he may have some terrible takes that they don't agree with, but they can't afford to lose that seat in Quebec. 
Well, and I also wonder, I mean, look, everything, I mean, it's politics, so obviously it's political, but everything is politics these days. And and I wonder if this is a sign that there is some kind of belief within the Liberal Party that their view might be more common than uncommon. And that if you do punish them or you do come out too strongly against them, you might be doing more harm to yourself than than good. I think that's a fairly accurate assessment of the party at the moment. Uh, as MPs were saying yesterday, the Liberal Party is a big tent and they have a lot of views and it's not uncommon for MPs to disagree with their boss. It is very uncommon for them to say something about it publicly. Yes. Yeah, no, for sure. Like we just, you don't see this often. And if you do, there's usually some kind of swift response just to make sure that everyone knows that the party is unified and the party stays together and you don't step out of line. And that's not just the liberals. I mean, that's a, that's a standard political operating procedure, no matter what the party is. Yeah, we have the government has whips for a reason to keep people in line. And Lightbound is a very smart MP. When he joined the Liberals back in 2015, he was touted as an up and coming star. So if he's saying something, it has to be very real internally and even inside the caucus as well. So it'll be interesting to watch how the story develops to see if any other MPs join him as well. I want to, uh, to to branch a little from this. Now, this all relates to all the same thing. It's restrictions and it's regulations and all these kind of things. I want to get to the truckers for you for just a second because I have a theory and I want to run it by you. And I want you to tell me if you think my theory is completely wingy or if you think there might be something to this. And that is that I don't believe, despite what is said up front, I don't believe that all the protests and all the truckers and everything that's happened is really all about vaccines. I, I really look at this and think... This has become a catch-all for anybody who is angry with Trudeau or with the federal government. And so this is the opportunity. There is a gathering. There is a protest. This is a chance for everybody who doesn't like what's going on and doesn't like this government and despises this prime minister to have their say in a way. It doesn't, it's not all just a vaccine protest. Look, I don't even know why you brought me on. The words right out of my mouth. I think you're exactly right. This protest is not just about vaccine mandates, about truckers, or whatever the issue of the day is. It's clear frustration that has been building over the past two years since COVID's hit us. It's frustration that's coming from since Justin Trudeau has been elected, because a lot of people that are out on the streets right now, they feel like they haven't been heard. They're not being listened to, and they're frustrated by that. And they are taking up and taking the streets because they want to be heard for once because it's been a long time since some of these people feel like the government's been listening to them and they've been left out in the cold and they're tired of it. And to be frank with you, the past couple of years have been very tough with COVID. So people are reaching the boiling point right now. So was the prime minister right when he spoke very strongly with very little um sympathy, I suppose would be a word, against any of the protesters and kind of painted all of them out there with the same brush as racist and everything else? Or was that overly inflammatory and maybe in retrospect, you know what, he may have thought that and some people out there certainly have done some stuff that's really not good, but that perhaps a little more of a conciliatory view might have toned this down a little bit. I think it's a blind, this is a big blind spot for this prime minister in terms of him being able to look at stuff beyond what he kind of sees the surface level. It's very easy to be critical and be harsh of something you don't agree with. And it's very clear since the beginning of COVID, he's been very clear about what way Canada needs to go. He hasn't been listening to the other voices. And that's why we're here today with people protesting is because they haven't been heard. And that's a fatal flaw of this prime minister is thinking that his way is the only way. And especially when it comes to vaccines, he was 
very clear to demonize people that were vaccine hesitant to make them sound like they were the problem instead of trying to speak to them on their level he just painted them as anti-vax so he's very quick to react but very slow to think sometimes and i think this was the case where he was very slow to actually think about who else might be in this protest yeah i I, look i i think there's an awful lot of people who agree with the prime minister quite frankly Mm -hmm. about the protesters i'm not suggesting that for a second but there is in my mind there is a uh a public statement that will appeal to your hard base i suppose and there's one that deals with the reality and again i'm not sure that that almost um what was it that uh Polyev, the the phrase he used where canada has one nerve and the prime minister is jumping up and down on it or something like that I, i'm not sure that saying the kind of things it may have served him politically i'm not sure it helped though to 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 dampen or to to, to knock down this protest all in fact i think some of those comments probably drew more people out who were sitting on the fence and were at home and thought, uh, okay. And then all of a sudden those comments are made and now they're mad and they're saying, well, I'm going to go join it. Well, the irony of Pierre Polyev saying someone's getting on your nerve is really out there. So I'll let that one slide. But no, I, I think the comments, he has not helped calm the storm a little bit. If anything, like you said, he's kind of fueled it a little bit more by giving the protesters uh, more gas into the fire. And I, I don't think it's in his best political interest to kind of calm it down because as we saw, a result of it was one of his major opponents, Aaron O'Toole, losing his job uh, because of the convoy and how he handled it among a number of other issues. But it kind of came to a forefront when the convoy came to Ottawa. So politically speaking, it's a great tool for him to keep in his toolbox because it keeps the opposition, the Conservative Party, look like they're out to lunch. Um, the NDP has been very silent on it, so he's had a clear path to kind of just be able to drum up support uh, for himself and show how good of a leader he's trying to be. It is, uh, it, well, we'll be talking about this. It's an ongoing issue. Apparently, there may be signs uh, from the news that the Ambassador Bridge situation may be, as we've heard on the news, I and mean, you will hear on the news, uh scaling back we're not sure yet because of things that are being passed uh daniel perry consultant with summer strategies thank you so much for the time today thank you you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml good morning you may be out right now driving around if you aren't um you may have been driving around yesterday or the day before or at some point and Notice that your gas gauge was getting a little low, and so you headed towards a gas station only to look up at the sign there telling you what you're going to pay, and maybe uh, different parts of your body clenched because it is unfortunate, it is unpalatable and unpleasant right now when you pull into a gas station and have to fill up your tank to see what you're going to have to pay. Well, there's a bunch of different reasons for this. Uh, There are geopolitical reasons and just pure political reasons and all kinds of other things. But my next guest says that there is a particular politician who has an opportunity here to do something about it, A, to help us, and B, to help himself. Uh, Jay Goldberg is with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, Jay, how are you today? Doing well. How are you? Doing fantastic, thanks. So who is the politician that you're citing that you think has an opportunity really to benefit himself and us with some action here? Well, I think that's Ontario Premier Doug Ford. Uh, You know, when he was running for office four years ago, Ford identified uh, clearly with taxpayers. And actually, that was the last time that gas prices were almost this high. We've now passed records. But Doug Ford came out to Ontarians and he said, I'm going to give you a gas tax cut if I'm elected. And 
that resonated a lot with everyday voters. It was ridiculed by some in, in the media uh, as just a relatively small cut, but it was a significant promise. And here we are four years later, and we're still waiting for Premier Doug Ford to deliver. Now, in November, he said that he would deliver a 5.6 cent per liter gas tax cut by the end of March. So we're hoping to see that when the budget comes down in March. But just to give everyone an idea, um, you know, you're going to the gas station right now. And if you're filling up two vehicles, say you have a minivan and a sedan, you're paying over $200 a week for your gas bill. Now, this could save a family a significant amount of money. And if Doug Ford implemented the tax cut that he promised, households would be saving about $400 a year. That may not sound like thousands, but it's a lot for everyday hardworking mm. people. And it could pay for a couple of weeks of groceries. And, and Jay, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Now, the problem, or, the, or at least the challenge that I look at when I see this is, okay, so we've just gone through, or we're still in, but going through pandemic time, where we're spending money like crazy for things that were, were never anticipated. We're hearing rumblings that we may have the license sticker on our license plate dropped, and that's 120 bucks a car. Um, at what point can the government even afford to do something like this anymore, even if it's a great idea, even if it was a promise that was made? Well, actually, so the Financial Accountability Office just a few days ago released their latest report into the province's finances, and they're projecting that next year the deficit could be as low as about $2 billion without new spending uh, or new tax commitments. Now, we want to see more tax commitments implemented, but what it means is that the government's finances here in Ontario uh, finally are in better shape than uh, we've been led to believe that they've been in. And so if that is the case, that's great news here in Ontario. And that means Doug Ford should deliver on his promises. The other thing is that people are hurting. We've got inflation, we've got cost of living soaring. And so taxpayers desperately need some relief. And whether that's a relief in terms of your license plate sticker fee, whether that's relief in terms of lowering gas prices, or even relief in terms of implementing the middle class income tax cut that Doug Ford promised four years ago, uh, these are really important and essential policies, particularly as we're looking to see the carbon tax increase for the third time during this pandemic on April 1st at the federal level. And we're seeing other countries like India, South Korea, so many others giving drivers gas tax cuts so that we can make sure that people are able to pay their bills and get some relief. You have pointed out, Jay, that, okay, so right now we're paying 8.8 .8 cents per liter for the carbon tax by 2030, that's going to be 37 cents a liter. Um, is this, I mean, so even if Doug Ford can lop five cents off or 5.6 cents or whatever it is, this seems like it's something that should be more directed at the federal government to say, you got to help us out. You got to give us a break here. I know you want to do the environmental thing, but we've also got to live. It is, and, and it's not just driving, as you point out as well. It's us driving, it's food in trucks, if we can get through, but getting food to us and other things like this affects every part of our life. Isn't this a federal thing that they should be looking at? Well, definitely, I would say we're hoping to get Doug Ford to deliver because that's a commitment he made to voters. It's a hard commitment. It's down in ink. He can keep that promise and we can hold him to it. Unfortunately, Prime Minister Trudeau at the federal level has given no indication that he wants to bring relief to taxpayers, particularly when it comes to the carbon tax. We would be looking if the carbon tax was fully implemented today. The, the Trudeau government's planned carbon tax, we'd be looking at gas prices that are at least $1.90 a liter. 
And that's completely unaffordable for families. So definitely we should be looking to the federal level. We want Doug Ford to keep his commitment. He has stood strong against the carbon tax. And if he delivers the gas tax cut, then all of the attention can be put squarely on Ottawa because Doug Ford will have done everything that he can. And now it's time for the federal government to look at their policies and reevaluate because this is hurting families. People can't pay their bills. They're having a difficult time just filling up to bring their kids to after-school activities. We can't have that, particularly in the economic environment we're in right now. And so the feds need to wake up. They need to realize that their tax plan is hurting Canadians. And of course, BC has had a carbon tax for over 10 years. Their emissions are still going up. So we know that this is a tax plan and really not an environmental plan. Mm. And so but, that's why the Trudeau government needs to change course. But let me ask you about that, though, because th- they would argue, I think, that our, we want people not to be using gas and we want people to be deterred from this. That's the whole idea, seemingly, of the carbon tax. So for the federal government to say otherwise would simply be saying everything that we have been telling you about cleaning the environment is not right. And, and you know, the other side of that is I, I think there are an awful lot of people, Jay, who they probably, and this is where, I mean, I think we're going to have some questions. There's a lot of people who really believe in that, that we really want to clean up the environment. What I wonder is, will their position soften a bit if we do hit $1.90 a litre for gas, or if we do see prices go up everywhere? I, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, obviously, we're going to have to rely on technological change. There's a lot of things we can do in terms of helping out the environment, but we have to look at things objectively. If there's been a carbon tax in BC and emissions are still going up, then I think it's time we realize that the carbon tax is not necessarily the answer to our environmental problems. So, you know, if we're just paying taxes to pay lip service to the environment, but really not accomplishing what we're setting out to do, then that's really not an environmental plan. And if we genuinely want to see change, if we want to see uh, improvements in our environment, clearly we're going to have to look elsewhere for solutions. And so I think that's what the federal government's got to think about. The other thing is... Uh, Very quickly, Jay, sorry, we're claim, short on time. Very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. It's one thing to claim that, um, you know, we need to do the carbon tax because we've got to transition the country. But to do it during the pandemic, when so many people that are suffering, tough. when people have lost their jobs, now is not the time to be doing it. Jay Goldberg from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks for the time. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. First period in Beijing right now, talking a little hockey. Canada, our women's team beating Sweden 3 0 in the quarterfinal. So that is um, that's good news. Not much of a surprise, but good news nonetheless. But yeah, I want to talk a little bit of hockey right now because it's not just Canada's women's team or Canada's men's team. We'll talk about them in just a second that is playing. Uh, Hamilton Bulldogs playing tonight. They are hosting the Barry Colts. Um, and not just hosting the Barry Colts, coming into this thing red hot. They're on a bit of a heater right now. Six wins in a row. I want to bring in the president and general manager of that team, the Hamilton team, not the Barry team, Steve Steo. Steve, how are you this morning? Hey, good morning, Scott. I'm well. How are you? I'm great. Hey, listen, before we talk about your current team, I wanted to ask you about your past teams. You played 1,001 NHL games, Boston, Vancouver, Atlanta, Edmonton, Calgary, the Islanders. When people who don't know all that much about you ask who you played for, does the team that you name first change depending on who's doing well in the standings at that time? (laughs) Uh, No, no. Uh, You know, I I played over half my game, Scott, with the Edmonton Oilers, so that seems like the... uh, 
that's what we talk about the most. It's right where I got kind of got traction. I bounced around, and like all you know, players, you got to kind of you'll find your way. And Edmonton was was the home for me, and uh, played over 500 games there. So Edmonton comes to mind. So and they're not I'll admit that that's that's going to be uh, the team that I, I associate myself with. All right, so so back here, uh, winners of six in a row, going for seven in a row tonight. And the thing that is impressive, there's a lot of things impressive about what the Bulldogs are doing, but right at the top of the list, most of these wins have come out have come without your best player, uh, Mason McTavish, who's over in Beijing at the Olympics. Um, you're second in the conference, you're nine points out of first, but you have five games in hand. Uh, things are going pretty well. Yeah, they are, Scott. I mean, uh, it's a credit to the coaching staff and these these young athletes. I mean, they're so committed. Um, you know, we really got to pull the reins back on them. The way that they, they practice, it reminds you of a young pro team, not a junior team. I think Jay has said that before, but it's a, a credit to this group. Um, yeah, and, you know, we, we were out without uh, Logan Morrison, who's our top scorer for some of those games. We're still out our captain, Colton Kammerer, who's a you know, mainstay on our back end and a terrific leader for us. But the, the group never changes. Like they, the impressive thing is the effort is is consistently there, um, and they're starting to gain some confidence. And the coaches have put in a great game plan, and uh, it seems like we're just kind of getting started. And, and there's still room to grow off of that. Uh, as I mentioned, Mason McTavish, who I, I don't think anyone would argue is your best player. You got a lot of good players, but I mean, a third overall draft pick in the NHL. Um, when you acquired him recently, did you know that he was going to be leaving for the Olympics? Yes. Yeah, we had the factor. It was a complex deal. I mean, uh, from, from, from that standpoint as well, uh, you know, uh, um, Mason is, you know, we, we knew he was going. We mapped out the amount of games that we thought we'd be missing him for. Uh, we felt like the, the group and the foundation, and it's proving it, that is strong enough to continually be competitive and win games even without him. And, uh, and you know, with the you know, the, the, the way COVID has done this with our schedule, we got some games at the reschedule in the back half. We'll have him for, you know, uh, we'll have our entire group for about 20 games leading into uh, the playoffs. So uh, I felt comfortable that that was enough time. And, uh, you know, just the, the type of player that Mason is, it's not like he's going to wear down either. He's a real, you know, uh, powerful young man. And uh, yeah, we, we did factor that in, though, for sure. Do you expect that when he comes back, oftentimes when guys, when young players have gone over to Europe or whatever and played pro, we saw it with Austin Matthews before, I mean, when he was in Switzerland, playing with men, they come back and they're suddenly a different player. Do you expect Mason to be even better having had this experience? I do. I mean, he, and also he did play games at pro games in Switzerland yes. as well. Uh, so. Yeah, any type of these experiences. We've had some players on our current roster who went over and played during COVID. And you do come back. You get a whole new perspective. I mean, the competition, obviously, he's playing against men. Uh, the pace, you know, it'll be a bit of an adjustment because you go from olympic size ice uh, back to North American size. But, I, no, I, we do expect uh, that he comes back with uh, uh, with a renewed vigor and confidence. Not, not like he needs it, but certainly I think it's going to be good for him. I mentioned um, bringing him in with a trade a moment ago. Um, you did something similar a few years ago. You made a trade for Robert Thomas that year, ended up winning the championship. He ended up being the MVP of the playoffs. So even though Mason has this unique schedule, did that Robert Thomas trade and how that worked out bolster your confidence to do something like this? Would you have done this if you hadn't made that trade before or did this make it easier? 
Um, good, great question. I think there, you know, in my mind, Scott, even from 2018, leading into uh, that year and even before, trying to map out exactly what, when this group would peak uh, or had the, had the potential to go on a long run, there were definitely some similarities. Uh, my approach often, always at deadline is to, to seek out the best players if we're looking to add to our team and, uh, and try and execute on those. And so, um, yeah, there are some similarities, no doubt. It's, it is a different year. Uh, league's a little bit younger. I don't know if there's, you know, quite the depth that was, uh, you know, in some of those top teams when you look back on 2018, including ours. Uh, you know, the depth we still had, you know, some older players, some 19-year-olds that were, you know, depth players in our lineup. It's a little different this year. We're a little bit younger, uh, but there's certainly some similarities. Uh, you played tonight against Bear. We got to run, but I uh, can't remember. Are there fans allowed tonight? 500, yep. We're back okay. out, and they're loud. It's great. Steve Steos. back in. Steve Steos, the president and general manager of the Hamilton Bulldogs, play Barry tonight, going for their seventh win in a row. Steve, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it, Scott. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.